Come on, Northgate. How are we doing this morning? My goodness, this is, a, this is a great, rowdy crowd. I appreciate that. You guys were just filling up my spirit while I was sitting backstage listening to you worship. Well, well done. Hey, give it up for Jesse and the entire worship staff. Just crush it today. Crush it, crush it, crush it. If I haven't got a chance to say hello to you, my name is Carl. I'm from a church up north called Bayside, and it's always a pleasure to be here at Northgate. Those joining online, this place feels like family. Are you ready to go 1130 service? Yes? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Family is a funny thing, and, you know, I'm kind of part of the family now. Is there anybody here who, like, comes from a big family, big family, like many siblings kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we got a couple out there. So I'm one of eight kids. Yeah, that's a, it's a lot, okay? It doesn't matter what century it is. That's a lot of kids. Uh, and, and growing up, my biggest worry, the biggest, the biggest concern in our house was, when am I going to eat again? That when you got a lot of sister, brothers and sisters, it's, that's the question. Is when are we going to eat uh, again? So like from time to time, my parents very rarely would take us like to a fast food restaurant, so like a McDonald's or Burger King or something like that. And then and I'm like the second to last, so I got like a certain disposition. My therapist is working on it. Don't worry about it. But um, I would do something weird. Like my parent, my, I would take the meal that I got and I would, I would hide it. I would hide like the Happy Meal or whatever it is I got. I just hide it. And then I would wait for all my brothers and my sister to finish eating. Then I would take the Happy Meal out or whatever meal I had and eat it in front of them. Yes, like this is what you do when you're second to last of eight kids. But, but there was like this, this, this time in between hiding the meal and eating the meal where I was just so filled with worry. I was worried, is anybody going to find the meal? Is anybody going to eat the meal? Am I going to enjoy it? Is it going to be cool? And like this, this, this kind of precarious situation I put myself in, then I had to deal with the tension of the worrying in between the time. I don't know if you've ever been there. Where you find yourself in a season in between one thing and another and worries just kind of got you. Worries kind of gripped your thought life. Worries kind of gripped your consciousness. I love this commercial from Travelers Insurance that I think like really captures what worry looks like in our lives sometime. Check this out. When it comes to things you care about, leave nothing to chance. How good is that? How good is that, right? I love the line in that song that says, sometimes it feels like worry is my only friend. Do you ever feel like that? That you wake up and there worry is. You go to bed, it's the last person to kiss you goodnight. It's worry. 
And worry finds, we find ourselves in these constant states of worry. Now here's what I want to clear your heart of first. Worry isn't a sin. It's not a sin to worry. It's what worry leads to that is a sin. It's not a sin to worry, to have concerns. But it's when worry kind of prefaces the sin that comes later. You can see this so clearly in the Old Testament, in the first book of the Bible, in the first people in the Bible, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve find themselves in a situation where they're worried. They're worried that God is holding out on them. They're worried that God's not giving them the full story. So in the midst of their worry, mistrust starts to bubble up. They start to not trust God. And then because they don't trust God, they step into disobedience. And they disobey the command that God had given them to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then that disobedience carries with it this shame. The shame falls upon them and they're like, whoa, we're naked. This consciousness or this self-consciousness comes upon them and they're covered in shame. And that shame leads to the consequence. The consequence is a hiddenness from God where they go and hide. And then God expels them from the garden. But before that, they try to take control. That's what we do oftentimes. That's what I do oftentimes. I'm worried about something, and that worry leads to this mistrust in God. And then that mistrust in God leads to me being disobedient to God and his word. And then that disobedience leads to, to, to me being feeling shameful because I know that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And that shame brings with it the consequences of that sin. But to manage that sin, I say, let me take control of the situation. And when we try to take control of the situation, it feels like we're in control, but it only lasts for a moment because our control is actually futile, and it ends up creating the cycle all over again. In India, when hunters are trying to catch monkeys, not to kill them because no one wants a dead monkey, but to, to, to capture them as pets, what they'll do is they will take a, a jar with an opening and they'll put fruit in that jar and then they'll bury that jar so only the, the, the hole can be seen. And the monkey will smell the fruit in the jar or the food in the jar and they will see this hole and they will stick their hand into the hole. And then they realize that they think their hand is stuck and they pull it out and here it's a jars around their hand and now they try to control the situation by trying to wiggle the jar off or break the jar off and while they're focused on the problem, while they're focused on the jar, they are captured by the hunters. And the monkey the whole time is able to free itself. All it has to do is let go. Let go of what it's holding on to, release what it's holding on to, and pull its hand out. That is us. Freedom from our anxiety and our worry is actually 
right there for us. All we need to do is release control to God. Margaret Feinberg puts it this way. Worry is a subtle way of telling God that he's fallen asleep at the wheel and that things aren't under his authority but ours. That God isn't ultimately sovereign, that he isn't ultimately over things, that it's actually you and I that are in control. Worry will. Worry will lull us into that point where we actually think we're in control. And all the meanwhile, we are captive. We are captive to the ways of disobedience and mistrust in the Father God. In Matthew, the first gospel, Jesus, Matthew chapter 6 specifically, Jesus is, is given a discourse. He is given a, a sermon that was over a couple of hours, perhaps even over a couple of days, to a mass of people. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus is speaking to these people, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He is talking about the kingdom of God, not only in heaven, but the kingdom of God here on earth right now. And Jesus is talking about the ways of the kingdom of God and the characters of the people in inhabitants of the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom of God. And right there, square in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes to these people and talks about worry. Why was it so important for Jesus to talk about worry to this first century group? Because remember, we always want to read scripture within the context of who the author is writing to, and he's actually writing, Matthew's actually writing to first century Palestinians, first century Israelites, first century Jews. And this is an agrarian culture that they were in. So they farmed, they fished, they were carpenters, they were stone workers. These were people who worked with their hands and relied on what came from the ground or what they could mend out of their own hands. And if rain didn't fall, that meant nothing came from the ground. If they didn't get the right supplies in, they couldn't build anything. If they, didn't, if they went to fish and nothing was, 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 was biting that day, they went hungry, they went, they went without. They couldn't sell anything. A simple cut on a leg could lead to death. There was no Kaiser. There was no Blue Cross Blue Shield. These people were truly living hand to mouth, day to day. So you got to believe worry was a part of their culture. Worry was a part of their existence. And Jesus goes right at it. And he tells them, this is what worry will do when it goes unchecked. And you can write this down in your notes. Number one, worry will distort perspective. Worry will distort perspective. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, and yet I, te and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor has dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Worry will distort perspective. Worry will change our perspective, our viewpoint just enough, just enough. So that your focus is removed from God, removed from your provider, removed from his sovereign hand, and it's put back into your control. Because when you can't see God, when I can't see God, I begin to believe the only way I'm going to get to the other side of this is if I start to make some moves. If I get really involved, if I try to fix the problem. But oftentimes when we try to fix the problem, we actually make the problem worse. When we try to fix the problem, we oftentimes make the problem worse. A couple weeks ago, I tried to fix a leaky shower in our bathroom. Okay? Do I look like somebody who's prepared to fix anything anywhere ever? No, I do not. And that's why the shower is still leaking with a cloth towel wrapped around the top of it just to not make a big mess. We, we, we don't have the ability, but, but we get distorted views. We get distorted views and say, I, I, I can fix our finances. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yes, I failed freshman algebra, but I can do this. I can fix this marriage. No, I do not have a counseling degree, but I can fix her. I can fix him. It it, it is not up to us. It's up to us to give control over to God and reposition the perspective that we have. The real issue here is not so much just an issue of perspective, but the issue of trust. Do you trust God enough that even when things get murky, even when things get off kilt, that you will rely on him, knowing that he's taking care of the birds of the air, that he's taking care of the beasts of the field, that he's clothed the grass and clothed the flower in splendor greater than Solomon, and you and I are his crown of creation. Do I trust him enough to say the God that created the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky, the God that created everything that we see, everything that we don't see in six days and took a break on the seventh, can I trust that that God can work out the little issue going on in my life right now? And though that issue may feel big to you, though that issue may be big to me, It is within the possibilities of the creator of the universe. So do I trust him enough to say, I'm not going to worry about this. And I'm for sure not going to allow this worry to develop into a sin that keeps me further away from you. Are you with me this morning, church? Worry distorts perspective. Number two, worry discredits testimony. Worry discredits testimony. 
Testimony, big Christian word, meaning your story, how your story of faith, your story of connection to God, how that plays out. Worrying will discredit that. Look what it says in verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Pagans, non-believers, people who are not in relationship with God. They chase after these things. This is, the, this is the, the original Instagram and Facebook comparison game of what Marcy is doing and what Marcy's going, where Marcy's going on vacation. Why are you looking at those things where, where, where your eyes should really be set on these things? It says, but seek first. His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first the things of God, the economy of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Does that mean you're going to get the same vacation that Marcy has? No, no, no. Your husband does not make the same money that Marcy's husband makes. But God says, seek first his kingdom and all and with righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What things is he talking about? God's talking about the things of his kingdom that you and I don't even understand that we're in need of. God's talking about the things of his kingdom that you and I don't even realize will fulfill us more than any amount of money, than any vacation house, than any peace of mind. God is talking about a, an, a, an eternal, a heavenly, a celestial economy. And when I reap the things from a celestial economy... It starts to answer a part of me that I didn't even know existed. God speaks to the consciousness of the heart in a way that you didn't even know you need to hear. And then my thoughts and my mind start to go so closely to the things of the kingdom of God, I forget about the things of this world. And then my testimony carries credit because I now know where my eternal citizenship is. So I don't worry about the things right here, right now. I'm thinking about one bright morning when this life is over that I will fly away in the hands of the Father. So that causes me to live on this earth with a different agenda. That allows me to live on this earth with a different consciousness, with a different approach. When I know who my father is, who my provider is, and where all the things of this world rely on. In the hands of the father. But can I tell you, my friends, there is a stark contrast in what actually plays out in our day-to-day -day lives. You see, you can't often tell the difference between pagan Carl and Pastor Carl. You see me up here, but you don't know my life. The same way I see you there, and I don't know your life. And if you're on this journey and you're trying to figure this, this faith thing out, I'm glad you are here. I'm glad you are watching online. But to the believers in the room, the believers watching online, sometimes the difference between the pagan us and, and, and the Christian us, there is a, no difference at all. But imagine what would happen in this world. Imagine what would happen, forget what happened in this world. Imagine what would happen in your life, in your marriage, in your home. 
Imagine what would happen in my life, in my marriage, in my home. If my focus was on God and the things of God and the righteousness of God. See, the world isn't showing up. You know, 20% of, 20% of America goes to church, and that number is probably lower. What's the other 80%? Why aren't they showing up? You know why they ain't showing up? It's because we don't believe what we say we believe. We don't believe what we say we believe. And they look at Christians and they go, if you're so consumed, if you're so connected to this God, why are you always fretting? Why are you always worrying about those things that you're always worrying about? Why is your Facebook and your Instagram always showing the things that you don't like, always showing the things that you are against rather than the things that you do like and rather than the things that you are for? Why is it like that? There is this stark contrast in what we say we believe and how we live our lives because we are consumed by worry and worry when it gives birth it gives birth to sin and that sin gives birth to a mistrust a disobedience a shame a consequence of sin and us again trying to be in control of our own lives and God says to us do not worry do not worry you ever take restaurant advice from an indecisive person? <laughs> Where should I go to eat? Where should I go to eat this afternoon after church? Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know. What do, you what do you think? Maybe Panera, oh, they, don't, they use too much lettuce in their salads. Maybe... Uh, Maybe Red Robin, all oh, the serve, their endless fries aren't endless enough. I don't know. Maybe Chipotle. Why do people call it Chipotle? It's called Chipotle, okay? Uh, maybe Chipotle, but the chicken's so spicy. I'm not taking advice from you. You are not certain about anything. Why should I take advice? Why should I take advice from a Christian who isn't certain about their Lord and Savior? Our kids, our, our friends, our spouses would be much more inclined to discover, would be much more inclined to, to wrestle with their doubts if our confidence was truly in the maker of the heavens and earth, Jesus Christ. But oftentimes, worry will discredit our testimony. Number three, worry will destroy our joy. Worry will destroy our joy. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has enough, has enough trouble of its own. Therefore, do not worry. Because when we worry, something takes place. When we worry, something takes place. Someone smarter than me said it like this, worry is the dark room where our negative thoughts develop. Worry is the dark room where our negative thoughts develop. And when you step in to your life and your every day, the, the, the pictures that you develop, the negative pictures that you develop now adorn 
the walls and spaces of your life and your consciousness. So when you're going through it, you look up, you look around, and all you see is negativity. All you see is past failures. All you see is want. All you see is need. All you see is your answers and the things that came up short when you tried to take control. And then the cycle begins all over again instead of allowing the joy of the Lord to be our strength. Instead of allowing God's words of righteousness and purity and holy and sovereignty and control and guidance and love and mercy and all the fruits of the Spirit, allowing those to adorn our headspace and our heart space so that when we hit those roadblocks of life, we can rely on Him as opposed to ourselves. Because here's what the enemy wants to do. And I'm sorry if you don't believe in this, but if you believe in an eternal creator and an eternal good, you got to believe in the eternal evil. Here's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to steal your joy. The enemy wants to steal. Notice I didn't say happiness because happiness is a feeling and it's fleeting. The enemy wants to steal your joy so that you can not trust God. If he steals your joy, your worry turns to sin. If he steals your joy, your worry turns to a damage that can sometimes be undone. Your worry turns into damage that can sometimes be eternal. Worry will destroy the joy that God desires for you. I've had the opportunity to work with students middle school through college for the last 17 years. And let me tell you something, friends. Millennials and Gen Z, that's anyone under the age of about 32. They are the most worried-filled generations in the history of our planet. They are so filled with angst. They are so filled with discouragement, and they don't even know where to point to. But I know where to point to. Myself. Because they emulate what I illustrate in my life. They emulate what I illustrate in my life. And I show them that they need to be in control. I show them that they need to manage their future. I show them that they are ultimately the drivers. And if they aren't driving, then they're not going anywhere. And because of that, therapists, psychotherapists tell us that the mind, the mind of a millennial or a teenager is the same anxiety level as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. A psychiatric adult patient in the 1950s is the type of angst that 10 and 12 year olds are walking around with today because of what we are emulating. A friend of mine sent me this letter written by a student last spring I want to read it to you. It says this. Dear family and friends and whoever reads this, 
I really don't want it to come down to this, but it's something that I felt I had to do. Living in Newport Beach is like living in a bubble. So much pressure is put on kids to do good, and lots of kids make mistakes. One slip up makes a kid feel like the smallest person in the world. You are looked at, as, you are looked at like a loser if you don't go to college or if you don't have a certain GPA or test score. All people, <clears throat> all anyone talks about is how great they are and how great their kids are. It's all about how great I am. It's never about the other kid, the kid who maybe doesn't play a sport, have a 4.0 GPA, but displays great character. People don't understand how to be selfless. If failure happens, it's something like not going to college or not getting an A in class or on a test. Maybe nobody seems to understand. They only see people on the outside. To me, the school of Corona Del Mar is not a public school. It's treated like a private school. So much pressure is placed on students to do well, and I couldn't do it anymore. There is never a moment to break. Finals have, pressures, have pressured me so immensely, along with a lot of other people. I want you to know that my parents were not the reason for this. My parents actually don't put almost any stress on me at all. It is purely the school. Nobody can understand what people might be going through. Be nice to everybody, and most importantly, be inclusive. If there's a kid out there who's alone, it never hurts to sit down with them and ask them how they're doing. I never liked CDM. The only thing that brought me joy in my school life was playing baseball and football. To my coaches, I tell them, don't, I tell them, keep winning championships and kicking butt. Playing baseball gave me the most joy I ever had. Baseball was a daily relaxing time where I could just go out there and have fun with my friends. Thanks for giving me that opportunity. Live and play every day like it's your last because you never know when you will be done forever. Thanks for all the memories. Patrick. This was one of a series of notes that Patrick left before he took his own life. 16-year-old boy, top of his class, athlete, living one of the most affluent communities in the United States, attending one of the top 10 high schools in the United States. Took his, whole, took his life, took his own life because worry, anxiety, had stolen his joy. What do I say to a kid like Patrick? When I counsel students often and parents of students, what do I say to them? I say to them the words out of 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast all your worry, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I understand there are people who deal with uh, mental illness, and that's a whole other thing. And we, I pray that the church will always be a compassionate, safe place for you. But those who are just under the pressure of worry and anxiety, there is a God who loves you. There is a God who wants you. There is a God who has made you in his own image. And he says to you, cast all your anxieties on me. Cast all your worries of today, your worries of yesterday, your worries of tomorrow. Cast 
them on me. And my friends, the way that we will be an encouragement to the people in our lives, the people in our sphere of influence, is when they see us casting our anxieties and our worries on someone greater than ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ. The practical application, my friends, is to lean in to Jesus. When life hits, when those tension-filled moments of life hit, lean in to Jesus. I'll illustrate it like this. Imagine an archer. An archer, the bow, and I don't know anything about archery. Somebody had to explain it to me, but... Um, the string is, is anchored between at two points. And, and, and we've got to be anchored, our lives have got to be anchored between trust in God and obedience to God's word. Trust or faith in God and obedience to God's word. And understanding that life oftentimes is filled with tension. But that tension doesn't always have to be negative if I understand where God wants to send me. That negativity, excuse me, that tension doesn't always have to be negative if I understand that there are seasons when it's tighter, there are seasons where it's looser, but I understand who's in control. Because I'm the arrow, you're the arrow, I can't really go anywhere on my own. If I go anywhere on my own, it's going to be bloop and I'm done. But when I am leaning in, when I'm casting myself on to the Father, when I'm putting myself into God's hands, God will use the tensions of this life, God will use the worries and anxieties and the stressful situations of our life, not allowing us to sin, but we're putting it in his hands, and now he's in control, and he is able to position me, he's able to point me and launch me into the season of life that he desires for me. God wants to send you into your greatest breakthrough. God wants to give you a future like you cannot imagine, but you've got to put yourself into his hands. You've got to cast all your worries, all your anxieties upon him and allow him to be in control. Worry. Worry will do some things. It will distort our perspective. It will discredit our testimony. And my friends, it will destroy our joy. But when we cast those worries on the Father, our future is bright, is prosperous, is abundant in the hands of the Father. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that every man, every woman, every child in this space, everyone watching online, Lord Jesus, may they put their worries and their anxieties into your hands. Father God, that they would hear the words of your son Jesus. May that echo in their hearts and consciousness the rest of this week. Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. We love you. We thank you. In your precious name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Before you go, before you go. 
Larry and the team would love to put this book into your hand. This changes everything to explain the love and kindness and, and just the beauty that is Christ Jesus. You can grab one of these in the uh, foyer, in the foyer, what year is it? You can grab one of these in the, in the lobby afterwards. But as you make your way out, let me read this blessing over you. If you stand to your feet. The Apostle Paul writes like this in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long... And how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever Amen. Have a great week, Northgate. Thanks so much for allowing me to be with you.